Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your host, Adam Duritz, and I am here with my friend and compatriot, James Campion, and I'm back on the caffeine. We're going to talk a little more today. We decided to have uh, talk a little more about like people singing really cool background vocals on different stuff. Uh, we just wanted to get back to that because we loved the ones we did on that. And we kind of wanted to revisit that with some more. Uh, so we're going to start right off with one of the great ones. This guy actually wrote the song for his friend's band. Uh, he wrote the song for his friend's band, and then he showed up to sing the background vocal. Although it's really, he sings the lead vocal on the choruses and makes the song. This is one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite bands. A band is Mott the Hoople. The album is All the Young Dudes. The song is All the Young Dudes. And the background vocal or lead vocal in the choruses is sung by the guy who wrote the song for their band, and that is Mr. David Bowie. Check it out. Mott the Hoople, All the Young Dudes. Yeah. This is an anthem. in the head when he was 25 speed jive don't want to stay alive when you're 25 and when you're stealing clothes from marks and sparks and freddy's got spots from ripping up the stars from his face funky little boat race the television man is crazy sam with juvenile delinquent wrecks
that not only did Bowie sing write and sing on this, but he really did resurrect Mott the Hoople from what I understand the band had been you know, constantly bickering and not agreeing on anything. And uh, Bowie, as Adam said before we played it, was a huge fan of these guys. And exactly what he did for Iggy's career and the Stooges, certainly, and what he did for Lou Reed, he kind of breathed life into it. And he came and he, and he said, I got a song. And it was their biggest hit, and it resurrected them, and they were able to do a few more records. And that's their best record, their well, best album, I think. sort of, but they do – and they get into the really good stuff. I mean – they had been a pretty great band. They had yeah. made four or five albums already at this point, but none of them had really done very well. Right. None of them had really sold, and they were getting kind of discouraged. And I think the record company might have dropped them. They might have left to go to another label. I can't remember. They were definitely at a crossroads. I mean, they, I mean it's funny because they'd recorded almost none of the songs that I really loved by then. They had some before this, but my favorite stuff all came later. And I guess he showed up and he said, no, you can't break up. I will produce the record yeah. and I will give you a song. And he offered, they wanted, he offered Suffragette City and they didn't want Suffragette City. That's they asked right. for drive-in Saturdays and they ended up settling on all the young dudes. And then he, he gave them all the young dudes. He offered to produce the record, which he did. And he convinced them to record their version of Sweet Jane, which is a fantastic version of Sweet Jane by his idol, Lou Reed. Lou Reed, right. Um, and, uh, and it turns out to be a great album. And also, he, he convinced them to glam it up a little bit. The funny thing is they had really, although they were discouraged by the lack of success on it, they had really found their their groove as a band on the album before this, Brain Capers. Or else they wouldn't have been able to you know maybe be as great as they are on, on, on uh, All the Young Dudes. Um, the, the records after this, Mott. Uh, and then the hoople. That's where they get songs like "All the Way from Memphis" and a bunch of stuff. They they really revitalize them because he also convinced them to glam it up. He's like, "You are a glam band. You're just not acting like a glam band. Right, right. You need to glam it up and dress it up." Yeah, and they yeah. did. And they, you know, that I think they really found their voice again in doing not only their voice but their vibe in doing that. But it's a fantastic song. Uh, they write a million of them after that. Right. You, know, uh, they were, they, you mentioned Anthem. They were a great anthem singing band. That was the, that's one of the bands that, like I said, Paul Stanley said he loved the English bands because they always sang about themselves. They wrote songs about their lifestyle. And the other thing, too, is that Bowie tried to resurrect Mark Boland's career. Mark Boland is rightfully given the, the, um, the title of the godfather of glam. Uh, he was the first guy from that whole movement and then he just sort of dropped off and he never had the success that Bowie did so Bowie went back to help him out and apparently they recorded over like span of a couple of days like four or five songs that people have demos of I think you probably could find them on YouTube or something like that but they were supposed to and then he died you know so they never were able to do anything with it but Bowie was the king of breathing life apparently into a lot of these guys careers but Mott the Hoople is that's a fantastic example of Bowie's all of Bowie's talents his his writing his production his singing which is what we're dedicating this podcast to, is more great lead singers who have specific styles but then subjugate themselves to put themselves into uh, another person's song, or in this case, it's his song, but another, you know, he's kind of part of the band. He's not really standing out. He's part of the band. Yeah, he really does fit in, and, and by singing the choruses like that, it, it, it enables them to soar in a way that they wouldn't do And him just do him. that rap at the end. Yeah. I love that, the outro. Yeah. Now, we've already done Bowie and Jagger, and they're sort of connected in many, many ways. In fact, I believe in that song. They sing, uh, my brother was as Beatles and the Stones, I never get off on that revolution stuff yeah. from that song. But um, yeah, Mick Jagger, who we played in the last time we did this, had sang back up on Carly Simon's hit, um, You're So Vain, and not credited. you know. And for years, I'd heard that song when I was growing up as a kid and even as a Stones fan. And then when I found out he was on there, I can't not hear him. 
Now, this particular song is completely different because here is Jagger doing what Bowie did for Mata Hoople for Peter Tosh, uh, famously, especially Keith, who, who has a house in Jamaica. Uh, the Stones were obsessed with reggae. They, they went to Jamaica to record Goat's Head Soup. They put a, a reggae song on, I think, about four or five straight albums. They did Hey Negrita. They did uh, Cherry O' Baby on Black and Blue. They did Luxury on uh, It's Only Rock and Roll. Uh, they did a couple of reggae-style songs on Goat's Head. But um, Jagger really wanted Rolling Stones records to be like Apple records. He wanted to put other artists on there. So... Of course, Peter Tosh leaves. Oh, what you mean, a, a semi-successful label that the members of the band never pay attention to, and therefore it, it descends into utter chaos while producing great music that nobody gets to hear because they are completely lost in the chaos of being the Beatles or the Stones. And goes bankrupt. No. Yeah. Well, uh, in the Stones' case, they just didn't have anybody else. But Peter Tosh, fr- the original Whalers, Bob Marley's band, uh, and Peter left for some reasons, but... I think the main reason was he just thought the band was becoming too commercial. When they got on the island, they brought in other musicians to play with them to kind of to give them more of a pop sensibility. And Peter was like more of a tr- traditional reggae, you know, style player. I also think when they, you know, they it was also becoming more of Bob's band after the first record, um, and that's why True. you know it was becoming more of a Bob Marley and the Whalers as opposed to the Whalers, which it had been. Right. And uh, you know, I understand him leaving at that point. But it's funny because he was the Keith. To Marley's Mick, in a sense, the lead guy, and then the side guy who was the guitar player. Sort of. There were three of them, but we'll talk about that later. Right. But in this case, that's a good point. Thank you for for, for correcting me there. But I was going to say that in this case, so here Tosh signs with Rolling Stone Records, and Jagger sings on the first track on 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 his first album, which became a single. And for all of us at that time, at least for myself, I got introduced to the song watching Saturday Night Live. Tosh was booked for Saturday Night Live, and we all were like, oh, cool, you know, and we're watching it, and he starts the song, and Jagger, it wasn't even announced. It wasn't going to be Peter Tosh or Mick Jagger. It wasn't anything for the week when they promoted the show. Jagger just walks on and starts singing it. People going nuts, but it was so great. He had a big smile on his face, and he just, he, we couldn't, he couldn't wait to sing with, with Peter Tosh. So the Stones are very much behind this record, and it's a very underrated record. Keith plays on it a few times, too. Keith plays on it, in, I mean, he may play on this song. I'm not sure. He might remember. be on this track, but this is a, an old is, Temptations yeah. song that they and uh, the Stones famously did a couple of Temptations songs. They did, uh, ooh, it's going to escape me now. I know they did dun, 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 uh, just my imagination yeah. on some girls and another one. Anyway, so this is "Got to Walk and Don't Look Back," Peter Tosh off the album "Bush Doctor" with Mick Jagger singing the backgrounds. <laughs> Can't run, 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 can't run
Please. I was gonna say there are a lot of the great reggae staples on that song. It's yes. uh, I mean it's Sly and Robbie, Robbie uh, yeah, yeah. Sly Dunbar on drums, Robbie Shakespeare on bass. Play the rhythm section on the whole record. Keith definitely plays on that record. I don't know if he's on that song. He plays on Bush Doctor and Stand Firm. Oh, okay, and then right. it's it's the I 3s Rita Marley and I can't remember the other women's name. The right. the, the, the the Whalers background singers. The I 3s yep. are singing the backgrounds there along with uh, along with Mick. Um, what you were trying to think of earlier, you know, that was also a staple of. The traveling circus and medicine show. We played that every night. That was one of those songs oh, where cool. we'd bring everyone back together after the, uh, uh, the the spearhead set. We would all come back on stage together and play "Walk and Don't Look Back." And I think that led into the Augustana set. And then we would come back and play uh, "Delta Lady" and go off for the first for the intermission because we played for four hours. And so there was an intermission. I was counting yesterday. It was like thirty-eight songs in the show. Wow. Um, of which I was by the end of it I was on about 30 which is a lot of singing to do in a night um, but we're talking about Peter Tosh and I know we didn't talk about this earlier but I want to add this in because you got to discussing um, when they signed with Island they made their first album Catch a Fire and Chris Blackwell saw it heard it and loved the band um, and brought and uh and they finished the record. And there were three singers. In a lot of ways, the Whalers started off as kind of a, a reggae doo-wop group with three singers, Peter Tosh, Bob Marley, 
and Bunny Whaler, Bunny oh, Livingston. That's right. Um, that's right. And uh, who's in all the documentaries now? Yeah, yeah. And when they signed to Island, and uh, when they finished the record, Catch a Fire, they Bob Bob went to England with the record, and they remixed it a little bit. And they put some different, a few British musicians on there. Rabbit Bundrick, who yeah, was the free the, keyboard player. The Who. He later played with The Who. Correct. When we were touring with The Who, he was The Who's keyboard yeah. oh, player. Oh, yeah, for years. But still he came is. from the band Free. Free. He was in Free, right, exactly. And he played on it, and a little, I think Bob added some other guitars himself. And they sort of mixed it a little differently. They took some of the other vocals down and made them more of background vocals, but. And and that's the record they put out, which is one of the great albums of all time. I, Catch no Fire. question. You know, we should talk about this because we talked about punk and like the seminal records, uh, the first Ramon record and all that stuff, uh, the, the Velvets. That record, that changed the whole face. That connected the Jamaican sound with England and it blew up and everybody that – I mean – Clapton yeah. did uh, I Shot the Sheriff and the Stones became obsessed with it everybody started doing a reggae style song before that everybody said well it's Calypso it's just a pop version of Calypso or, but that record they did a brilliant job combining the British sound with uh, even the new wave because it's late 70s with, with the, the uh, Bob Marley and Bar- yeah. Mar- Bob Marley was smart he knew that that was a way to expand his audience yes and, and, it, and, it, and it, but it did turn the band into more Bob Marley and the Wailers absolutely even did. though the first album is called Catch a Fire by the Wailers yes but I will say this and, and this is one of my favorite albums of all time so I have never thought poorly of the work they did on it because it is one of my all time favorite records but then a few years ago uh they were releasing a bunch of these deluxe versions of albums. This is probably uh, 15 years ago. Oh, now. I know what you're going to say. And yeah, yeah. they did the deluxe version of Catch a Fire. And what they did, the, you know, different albums have different things. Uh, the one of uh, Good Night Yellowbrick Road and also Captain Fantastic have uh, live concerts as the second disc. Right. Um, I'm forgetting. Now I'm blanking on all the other ones because so I can't tell you what they are. But I, I rem- what they, you know, the one of uh, what has a uh, ballad of a well-known gun. Uh, oh, uh, the tumbleweed uh, connection. Tumbleweed, right? Has a bunch of uh, uh, alternate takes. Yeah, on, those Elton John uh, compilations. Yeah, early Elton John demos are the other one. But what they did with the Whalers and it had never been released before. Yes, I know. Right? Is they released the deluxe version, and the first version was a remastered version of the album as we'd all heard it. And the second version was a remastered version of the, the original right. Catch a Fire record, the Jamaican version, before they went over and remixed it and added tracks to it. And as as always, when I listened to the original, the version that we all heard, right. remastered, it was my, it was so good, right. so good. But then I put on the second disc, which was the original Jamaican version of the record, mm-hmm. and. It blew my mind. I have never listened to the other version again. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I heard a bootleg of that. The version of Get Up, Stand Up, the original version of Get Up, Stand Up from that record, the Jamaican version, yeah. I've heard that many times, and it's, it is superior. I mean, it knocked one- me out because it really plays up their their roots as a three-person lead singer band and as a harmony band, as a doo-wop band, because when they pushed the vocals back up, the original version, the vocals were, the Peter Tosh vocals and the Bunny Whaler vocals were much louder. They were more imbalanced with Bob's vocals. Yeah, Peter Tosh was marginalized on that band. And it was eye-opening. And I want to play one song from that because if we're talking about background vocals in a way, then I don't know who the background singer is here, but I, I'm going to call it Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. But their vocals oh, on this them. song it's are, them. no, I mean, 
I don't know who to call the lead singer. Oh. Because they're all three singing at the same time. Sure so if are. we're going to call Bob the lead it's singer like, here. Speaking of the Temptations, it's like that. It's like the Temptations. Yeah. It's, but it's it's almost closer to things like the Orioles in a way. It's like a reggae version of the Orioles and the uh, the five uh, the five Satins. Oh, and the those, OJs. The, you know, no, the I'm kind. thinking of the great doo-wop groups, not oh, soul right, groups. Oh, like the Flamingos. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I want you to hear. This is Concrete Jungle. It's the first song on the record. And it is searing. And I I love this song all my life in the other version. But sure. when I heard this version of the record, I've never gone back again. And, and if, I, if I could just add one last thing. I, I, Catch a Fire is not my favorite uh, uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers record. I like Exodus more and uh, Kea. But those are even more popular in some ways than, uh, than this first record. This record still remained raw, but what we're about to play, and he's right, because I've heard these bootlegged out. I, don't, I didn't even know they released this, but I'm going to run out and get a version. When I heard this version of this album, it erased every other Bob Marley and the Whalers record for me. And I like them. I love them all. That's I've always loved them all. Man. And I loved them live after those guys had left, and they made like Babylon by Bus and, and uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers live in London at the Rainbow. I think that's recorded. The Rainbow, right? But this record... In this version, uh, well, I'm just going to play it. This is the first song on the album, Catch Fire, which is the first song from the first Bob Marley and the Whalers record, when they really were just called the Whalers. Right. Concrete Jungle. Listen to Bunny Livingston, later Bunny Whaler, Peter Tosh, and Bob Marley sing together on this, and it will blow your mind. Clown. 
excellent point. Uh, that that song is oh, I can't say completely different, but organically, I think when it first started, I, the, one of the things that rem- I I remember about hearing some of the bootlegs of that is that the songs have more of a folk feel to them. They're most, more uh, the acoustic guitars. They put a lot more keyboards on the island version of it, but the vocals are clearly way, way up in front. Yeah, yeah. those really incandescent. Uh, Somewhere for me. <laughs> Good word. And kind of like yes. uh, the Peter Tosh and Bunny Whale are singing together. Those harmonies that are right. kind of like the doo-wop harmonies on them. So good. Uh, those really knock me out. Or the jungle, jungle, jungle. It's like the Five Satins or something. Yeah, that, know, that yeah. really flips me out. Great job. Yeah, that was. We did not plan on playing that, but I'm so glad you did because it totally fits in with what we're doing. One of the things that we did in our last one when we did was we played some songs that Adam sang background vocals on, and we have a few more we wanted to share with you. Yeah, we're almost out of them, but we have a few more. This is a uh, at one point in like two thousand one, two thousand two. I don't remember when it was happening. Uh, I think both the records came out in two thousand two, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Ryan was making Ryan Adams was making gold, and I was making. Uh, we were making hard candy, and we were gold. Back by the and way, forth. it's Ryan Adams' masterpiece. For, yeah, as far I think as so too. And we were bouncing back and forth between each other's studios. We talked about how we met at the Viper Room. He called me up on stage to sing along with Rosalie Come and Go, which we also recorded and didn't end up on the record. But this one did end up on the record, and we ended up making a video of it with me and Ryan and Leona Ness is in it and Elton John. It's, it was the, the, the video is sort of set in The Wizard of Oz, basically. We're, we're going along this yellow brick road. As we're, I don't know what that has to do with the song at all. Is that on YouTube? I don't want to see that. But uh, Elton plays the wizard at the end of the video, kind of. Uh, it was funny because I was I had to do it between gigs when we filmed the video. The, we were we were on the tour by then, and uh, Ryan called me and asked me if I would you know come and and film this video with them. And I was like, sure, you know. But I I had to fly in like on a red eye from wherever I was to New York. So I got in at like six in the morning, went to the hotel, which they had me staying at the uh, the Chelsea Hotel, and where there's still crazy shit going on around me, like oh. in, in the dormish rooms around my room. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, so I spent uh, night at the Chelsea. So at the Chelsea Hotel, and I, I I slept for maybe an hour or so, and then I had to go to right, right to the video. So I was like, uh, ran down to the set. I got in at like six in the morning or five in the morning, something like that, and. Went to the hotel, slept for about an hour, got up, went to the video. I had to be there by like 7 or Where'd 8. Where'd they shoot it? Some studio here in New York. And we're there hanging out. It's me and Ryan. And, and he introduces me to a friend of his. And they've just been cutting tracks for his friend's record. And Ryan's been producing it and playing lead guitar. And this is Jesse Mallon. And we're sitting in the yeah. dressing room on a boombox. And Jesse's playing us. Ryan and Jesse are playing songs from... Uh, the Fine Art of Self-Destruction, Jesse's first record. Jesse had been the lead singer for one of uh, Billy Thompson's favorite bands, Degeneration. Um, and so I had always heard about Jesse from, from Billy, who was our uh, guitar tech. And Billy loved Degeneration and loved Jesse, and he had always played their music for me and told me about Jesse. And uh, But I didn't meet him until this one day, and we're there, and uh, I'm hearing all these great songs like TKO. They're playing to me on a boombox. They're not mixed yet, really. They're rough mixes. But I loved their record, and they ended up taking Jesse on tour with us uh, later. But uh, what I remember most is that we're there all day filming, and uh, midway through the day, I have to I have to piss really badly, and I run upstairs to the little dressing room I have. It's this little room in the studio, this uh, soundstage, and I run upstairs to go to the bathroom, and I'm running out of the bathroom, 
to run back down because we're in the middle of filming and I just got to pee really badly. <laughs> and I'm zipping up my pants. I run out of the bathroom into the hallway and I'm like trying to pull up my zipper and I bang into this guy and he's like, oh, excuse me. And I'm like, oh God, excuse me. Holy shit, you're Elton John. And he goes, well, yes, I am Elton John and you're Adam Duritz. How about that? We both know who we are. And I was like, uh... I got to go. He goes, by all means, go back. And don't forget to finish zipping up. It was something like that. It was a hysterical That's conversation. Fantastic. You never told me this story. I, 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 I forgot about it. I don't know. It just you like, forgot about running into Elton John out of the That's pisser. how I, this, is the, this is where I first met Elton John was zipping up my zipper and oh like uh, in the hallway on Ryan's video. And, you know, uh, you've told me a lot of celebrity stories and people you've played. And even you know Paul McCartney meeting Paul and, and different things. But I got to say, Elton John is one of those guys. I don't know if I could talk to Elton John. I'd probably be stammering. I, you know, he was just... So nice and so, I don't know, not not the caricature of who you think Elton John is, but maybe the character, caricature of who you dream about Elton John being, in that he was just jolly and funny and, like, but how very cool, British. And, but how cool is that? Elton John is a mega, mega icon, and he's he's playing a part in a Ryan Adams video in New York City. That's well, so they were cool. friends, you know, and Ryan had did did Crossroads with uh, Elton. Yeah. Where Ryan did still, Elton you know, songs and Elton Ryan always covered out, El- you know, uh, Rocket Man. Well, Ryan was very much uh, the the hot thing at that moment and everybody yeah. was coming to see Ryan play. Uh, the same way they were with us at the beginning, you know. It, it was everybody wanted to see Ryan Adams at this moment, you know, and play with him. And 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 Elton as far as I can tell, just the loveliest guy alive. Anyways, we filmed the Answering Bell video, which for some reason, I have no idea why, is a Wizard of Oz-themed video. <laughs> because that's how videos were made back in the day. Because they just try to figure out a way to get Elton John in it. <laughs> but this is me singing. I, I did about five background vocals on this record. Oh, yeah, you're Rescue all Rescue Blues, Touch, Feel, and Lose. Uh, I got a camera what all the other ones are. Um, Rescue Blues, Touch, Feel, and Lose. Rosalie, Come and Go. Which we uh, played already, I think. And and this one, which is uh, from the the album, his second album, Gold. This is Answering Bell, with uh, background vocals by the lovely and talented me. Did I slip? No stumble. Did I trip? Cause I know I fail. All I know is I wake up here in my clothes tomorrow Oh girl, wish I knew you well Oh girl, wish I knew you well But I'm saying hi, hi Tell your answering bell Did I run? Thought I was walking Do your in the names will change, but the constellation is still falling. Oh, girl, if you could only say. Oh, girl, if you could only say. But I'm just saying, hi, hi. Let your tears fall and touch my skin. Then your thunderclouds can rage and bear I will collect them all for you and butterfly jars Oh girl, build your wish and wear Oh girl, 
to your answering bell Did I sleep? Must have been dreaming Did I weep? Cause I cried like hell All I want is your fortress of tears to crumble Oh girl, tell me down myself Oh girl, the stories they can tell But I'm just saying hey I was just telling Adam that my wife and I listened to this record ad nauseum when it came out. We loved it. It's one of our favorites. We knew every song, every word back. And I was just telling you know how many times I've sung that high, ah, and I had no idea that it was him. Even though I was a big fan of you and Counting Crows, because you know you had the CD back then, you put it in, you don't even think about it. I never thought to look at the, the, uh, the. Oh, I read the fucking booklets, man. You read the books, I, <laughs> I never took the damn booklets out. Um, I should have because I was the you, when I had albums, I would spend hours. You know, I guess when you're older, you don't have the time. But we listened to a lot that that album a lot traveling, and um, it's just you're Mick Jagger, man, because. I could listen. I saw. I must have heard that song. I want to say at least fifty, sixty, seven, maybe a hundred times, and I didn't specifically hear you. Listening to it now, sitting here in this controlled environment, knowing it's you, I can really hear you and hear all the things you do well to a song to add to a song. It's just so. It's great. It's what we're talking about in these podcasts about lead singers who have distinct voices, but getting into the song, enjoying the song, and your voices mesh really well together. I know you guys were friends and you lived together for a while, but it. There's just a natural connection of your voice with his there. And with that in mind, you know, we, we, like I said, we were bouncing back and forth between each other's studios on this record. And, uh, you know, so there's parts of like Los Angeles is written. I think the first verse is mine. The second verse is – or maybe the first verse is Ryan wrote it because it's the Nashville verse. Uh, the second verse is the San Francisco one and I wrote it. I mean, I wrote the chorus to the song, but I, I wrote the second verse. And the bridge, uh, Dave Gibbs wrote. It's about leaving Boston behind. And Los Angeles is really about all three of us leaving home and right. coming to L.A. and uh, sort of celebrating our uh, street walking, as we called it. Right. Um, the, the count, we should mention the Counting Crow for those who don't know. The Counting Crow song, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, Hard yeah. Candy. And uh, another one that we wrote together on this song was uh, – Butterfly in Reverse, which is written about our friend, my friend, and then also his now, uh, uh, Mary, Lou- Mary Louise Parker. It's somewhat about our friendship with her, or my friendship with her. The and, actress, uh, right, yeah. And he wrote part of the verses on that. Um, some really great lines, although I can't remember which ones are his and which ones are mine now. But uh, later on, we had done some of the background vocal recording. Um, Ryan had to leave to go on tour, and we had to go on tour too. I flew over early. We were going to do a European tour. Um, we had done the background vocals on American Girls with Cheryl Crow, and she had also sung on Black and Blue. And uh, Ryan was nominated for some Brit Awards. 
and our friend uh, Steve Lillywhite, who was who produced Hard Candy, was also had then become the the president of Mercury Records, which is whatever record they distributed uh, gold in England. Uh, that they owned the label that Ryan was on in England, um, and so he was nominated for some Brits. And the Brits are different from other award shows, although now I realize they're kind of like the Golden Globes in that everybody sits at tables and gets wasted. And they have like a concert that goes on there. And so I went early to record Ryan's background vocals for uh, Butterfly and Verse and to go to the Brits with him and Steve and with Leona Ness, who he was dating, who was with him over there then. And we got really, really wasted at, this, at the Brits, really drunk. The gorillas played. It was the first time they'd ever like played live, sort of. They were cartoons, of course, up there. Sure. Ryan I can't remember if we did Answering Bell at the show. Now I'm spacing on whether we did. But I know I got really drunk. And the next day we, we went to the studio in, in, in London to record his vocals. And uh, while we were there, I was playing them some other stuff. And we were, I was playing them black and blue. And Leona was sort of singing next to me. And I turned to her and I'm like, what did you just sing? I'm like, rewound it. Play, play that again, Steve. You know, And he played it. And Leona sang. And I'm like, hang on a minute, Ryan. Before we do this... I need to go do these background vocals with Leona. And Leona did background vocals for... Uh, just because she happened to be sitting there, sitting next to us while we were playing it. And uh, she sat and went and did the background vocals. And that's her on Black and Blue. Oh. Um, she sings great background vocals on Black and Blue. Uh, but what I want to play you right now is me and Ryan. Because we just played me and Ryan. Right. And this is uh, that was me and Ryan on his album, Gold. And this is me and Ryan singing on our album, Hard Candy, on Butterfly in Reverse. Uh, Charlie, by the way, on this song is playing a tack piano, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's where they they literally stick tacks in all of the hammers, right, on the right, piano. Yeah, that's right. So that they go blink, blink, blink when they yeah. hit when they hit the strings. They we, make this we weird were, sound. We, we were thinking about playing this. I, that was one of my choices it, when we first started talking about the chamber pop. Oh yeah, and I was like butterfly, and and you actually, I was surprised you agreed to put it because we haven't played any count. This is the first Counting Crows song we will be playing is on this really? podcast. Yeah, the only other song we played that you sang on lead was Carmelita in our. Uh, oh right. So um, if you that weird piano sound, we actually had to look all over LA to find a tack piano because rather than just ruin the one we had there, we found a guy that had a tack piano and we we brought it up to the studio for this one day to record this song. Um, we put it in the dining room of the house we were working in. Um, anyways, this is uh, County Crows playing Butterfly in Reverse with Ryan uh, singing backgrounds. Marianne, you're better than the world. It took a lot of time getting it right on this girl. I said, Marianne, you're better than the world. You did a lot of Right on this girl Had a lot of girlfriends I should have known them Click your heels and count back from three But do you want to go back? You should have known that The butterfly in reverse here is me But Marianne, you're better than the world Took a lot of time getting it right on this girl I said, Marianne, you're better than the world You did a lot of things right on this girl
is locked up inside you like butterflies and wings and other perfect things we go swimming in the sunshine dangling from clotheslines separate and fall into me but did you ever see me me absolutely me but all you but still Beautiful song, my friend. I and gotta say, I really love on the. There's uh, Charlie has a really gorgeous low background vocal on the uh, on the ooze that we do in there, and also those strings that Charlie wrote are fantastic. Those are great. That's a great string part Charlie wrote. Great sounding record, um, arguably my favorite sounding Counting Crows record, and Ryan is doing a fantastic job there. Uh, you could again, if you know it's Ryan Adams, you can clearly hear him in it. But uh, still, serving the song beautifully, and um, yeah, it's just a great sounding, it's a great song and a great sounding song, and a wonderful job uh, playing both what you did for his song and what he did for your guy's song. Here's one, I mean, everybody knows uh, famously that uh, Prince and Sheila E. had a very, very tight creative relationship. Uh, They were lovers for a time, but mainly, she was the one person that came into the whole Paisley Park milieu that didn't leave she she didn't there was a lot of people that that prince had had personal relationships with that didn't work and they and then the the person eventually drifted from the group but she was always there and and one of the great shows i ever saw was his love sexy tour in which she played the drums one of the great live drummers you'll ever see of course her dad played with santana so she comes with an excellent you know with a with a pedigree but um Prince had written a song for her called A Love Bazaar and sang on the background of it. So during those sessions, he had written a song called Erotic City, which is my probably one of my top two or three favorite Prince songs of all time. This was at a period where he was really a mother. He was writing for six different bands. He was doing B-sides that were different than the, you know, he was doing extended versions of songs. This is during the Purple Rain period, the 1999 Purple Rain, Around the World in the Day parade period from 83 to 85. And this is the B-side of um, Let's Go Crazy. And this is the long version, the 12-inch version of this. Erotic City, Make Love, Not War, or something like that. Uh, Erotic Erotic City, Make Love, Not War, Erotic City, Come Alive, extended version. uh, One of the things that I enjoyed about this, and of course, uh, uh, the reason why I bring any of this up is that um, Sheila E. sings background for this. And she's got that great, sexy, but really cool kind of voice. They, They mesh really well together. And... So, you know, they're singing, we can fuck until the dawn and, you know, making love till Cherry's gone. And we used to play this all the time at Record World when I worked there. And people would be go, um, uh, uh, no, no, we can funk until the dawn. Oh, oh, it's they can funk until the dawn, I see. Even though the name of the song is Erotic City. Anyway, this is uh, Prince and uh, Prince Rogers Nelson and Sheila E. with Erotic City. 
Okay. <laughs> First of all, that's a fantastic song. It is. Second of all, <laughs> it's a great about a minute song. into the song, I turned to James and I said, I wonder if I can take a shower and get back before this song is over. And, and uh, not only did I, I took a shower, I washed my hair, I dried, yeah. I changed my clothes, yeah. and made it back. I'm a little out of breath now. It's that's amazing. just fucking life, man. It's so funny, too, because as the song, I know how, when the song's going to end, because I know that song like backwards and forwards, and I looked over towards the closet, <laughs> and I could see him coming. <laughs> so he made it. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tour de force, that song. Uh, it's all Prince. He's doing everything there. Um, that's one of those things where... You know, there's a great book that's out. Um, you met, you saw it before when you were looking for the song, uh, the the uh, studio sessions, 1983 to 1985. I'll try to remember the author's name later, but uh, I'm reviewing it for the Aquarian Weekly this summer, and uh, it's amazing what Prince did. It's a diary of everything he did from that period, and there isn't a day, unless he's on tour, that he's not recording. And he would do. He did that like pretty much in two nights. And he brought her in, and she just sang the background vocals and did a fantastic job. It's a great example, again, of two voices meshing really well. And In this case, a, a male and female voice. And he's got that little Camille thing going, the high voice thing going there. So that, yeah. Yeah, Very good. He's got that all. Uh, yes, go ahead, please. Well, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Paul Simon. We talked about him in our podcast on, uh, about Hearts and Bones. Um, you know, and he's done a lot of stuff with artists from all over the place, worked with different kinds of musicians. And I just want to do an early one that he did. This is on his second record, I think. It's uh, There Goes Roman Simon, 1973. Uh, he gets the Dixie Hummingbirds, one of the great gospel bands ever, to come in and sing backgrounds for him. They sing a lot and a lot of stuff on this record, I think. But uh, the one I really love is, is on Love Me Like a Rock. Because their vocal, it's like... I had this 45. It's a great song. He totally nails it. But honestly, the background vocals, the Dixie Hummingbirds, they just make it unforgettable. Because it's a great example of someone, the perfect meshing of song and guests. And they just kill it. And style, which is what we talked about when we talked about Paul Simon last time. It's... He could... He totally... When he writes a song, he knows how the style he wants to go and he gets the perfect people to... To play on it or sing on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of Love Me Like a Rock as a gospel song, but he hears this thing in it and has these guys come on, and it is... Oh, they're... It's perfect. They're doing all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also the low vocal, the low... uh, Yeah, and and it's so great, too, because... Yeah, then it goes into, like, this whole kind of, like... what we were talking about before with the the Whalers, kind of like a... uh, A doo-wop thing. doo-wop thing at the end, Yeah. Love this song. Great song and a great pick for background vocals. Check this out. The Dixie Hummingbirds guesting with Paul Simon on 1973's There Goes Rhyme and Simon. This is Love Me Like a Rock. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a groove. When I was a little boy the devil called my name When I was just a boy I say now who do Who do you think you're fooling When I was just a boy I'm a consecrated boy When I was just a boy Singer in Sunday choir Oh my mama loves me She loves me She get down on her knees And hug me Oh it's 
such a fun song. I love that song. I really, really do. It takes me right back to when I was a kid listening to a little AB, ABC radio with my my AM radio and the little earpiece in my head listening to Paul Simon. So that, 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 that was when Paul Simon was on one of the great roles of all time. And every song sounded different. He, he messed with a lot of different genres. It was really great. Um, one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I can't believe we've gone into how many podcasts we have. And we haven't played any Randy Newman yet, but uh, Randy Newman's one of my favorites. Adam and I talk about it all the time about how you know he was one of those guys with short people specifically, but with other songs like "Sail Away," where the untrustworthy narrator. Um, he did a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff too. He liked to play with genres, and here's kind of his. And, and as you know, he has done a ton of soundtrack work, so he can he can he can take something utilize its style to to to, uh, to serve whatever story he's trying to tell. This is a nice little patiche of like a, uh, I would say like a western kind of style and he got the Eagles to sing on it because everybody loved the Eagles to sing on their stuff. 
Uh, of course, they sang on the you know a lot of Warren Zevon, as we talked about, and other people's stuff. But this is a great, great song called Writer in the Rain. It's not one he's really known for, but I love the style of it. And the Eagles, specifically Don Henley and, and Glenn Fry, really add to the style of this. Anyway, Writer in the Rain. This is from Little Criminals, the same album that has short people, 1977, Randy Newman and the Eagles with Writer in the Rain. His first gold record ever. Oh, really? And we'll talk about that a little bit when we get back from this. Okay. Got a gun in my holster Got a horse between my knees And I'm gone to Arizona Pardon me, boys, if you please I have been a desperado Raped in pillars across the plain now I'm going to Arizona Just to ride in the rain He's a rider in the rain He's a rider in the rain And I'm going to Arizona He's a rider in the rain Oh, my mother in St. Louis and my bride's in Tennessee so I'm going to Arizona with the banjo on my knee he's a
Well, the funny thing about that song is I think he's just really making fun of songs like that song. Pretty much. And he's yeah, making I mean, fun of the Eagles. <laughs> I mean, he just, he's maybe making fun of the Eagles a bit. And they're singing on it, you know. Like, he, even says, he even says Desperado in it. Yeah, he, I mean, he doesn't really say only... much about anything. In, it's just like, I'm just, I'm a writer in the rain over and over again. Yes. And I'm like, you know, I have been a Desperado raped and pillaged across the plain. Now I'm going to Arizona just to ride her in the rain. Then right after that, though, oh, my mother's in St. Louis and my bride's in Tennessee. So I'm going to Arizona with the banjo on my knee. He's playing off of Oh Susanna, where he's going to Alabama with the banjo. He's trying to find her. You know, exactly. You know. In this one, he's trying to run away from her. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know what's amazing about this? And that, it, you know, they list the Eagles. So they also talk about J.D. Souther, who I, and it was a very good uh, friend and a great songwriter of uh, uh, Warren Zevon's, and wrote a ton of songs for Linda Ronstadt. Was her lover for a while. And um, and uh, Timothy B. Schmidt, who was in the later uh, um, incarnation of the Eagles. of the Eagles. But I had no – I always thought – because I have a live uh, – in some L.A. club in the 80s of Randy Newman. He's got uh, the aforementioned Linda Ronstadt with him and, and Rye Cooter who plays the slide in the live version. That is not Joe Walsh who's on this record. That is Wadi Wachtel playing the slide on that. Wadi who introduced country music to Warren Zevon when they were touring with the Everly Brothers. And Wadi was a huge country fan. Wadi plays the lead on Short People and he's playing acoustic in a lot of these songs. But there's a ton, and Rick Morata's playing the drums on a lot of these songs. Rick Morata plays on pretty much three quarters of Excitable Boy. So there's like this amazing LA, you know, uh, connection and cross pollination of all these different musicians playing on everybody else's stuff. But yes, there is. There was a joke. There was a thing that a lot of people felt that Warren Zevon was making fun of the Eagles, and then got, was kind of wink, wink, having the Eagles on his records. But that is a clear. You nailed it. That is a clear. Uh, sort of a tweak at what the Eagles were yeah, doing. Yeah, I, mean, I think time. he's really... Um, I'll tell you one about Rick Murata. It's kind of funny. Uh, oh, you know Rick? Yeah, oh yeah. I dated a girl, and Rick Murata was one of her best friends. And when he came over for dinner one night, uh, he was introduced to me. Uh, so this is Adam, this is Rick Murata. And I said, oh my God, you're Rick Murata. You were the drummer for all the Peter Gabriel stuff. And he's like, no, that's my brother Jerry. I'm like, oh my God, you're Rick Murata. You're the drummer on the... Warren Zevon stuff. He goes, yes, that's me. <laughs> like, okay. Well, you saved yourself. Very good. Wow. His, so his brother played drums uh, with Peter Gabriel. And those early Peter Gabriel records, like the one that all Bob the way up Ezrin through like produced? security. I don't know if he's on all of them. He's. It's like Peter. Peter. What's the guy's name? Peter Levin or Peter uh, plays the the stick on all that stuff. Oh yeah, um, yeah, sure, sure. No, not Peter Levin. It's no, Jerry. Uh, it's Levin though. You're right yeah, about that. Something Levin, and then. Uh, Rick Rick Murata and or Jerry Murata and I can't remember who the guitar player is. Space on it right now. Those are great records. That's probably a Tony Levin. Tony Levin. Is Tony Levin. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know we're in the Mellow Mafia. We might as well continue with the Mellow Mafia for at least a second. Okay, please. Um, which is the? Uh, <laughs> it's a shitty way to call the L.A. Uh, well, all the people that played with uh, all those, those Jackson are, Brown and the Eagles sure, sure. and uh, Randy Newman later and uh, Warren on the Warren, Lauren Ca- Laurel Canyon. Yeah, uh, you know that's like some great musicians. I'm just giving no question. Shit about the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Um, and that's who I want to talk about. Because, Joni Mitchell. Um, those guys were great singers, oh. uh, and they sing on yes. a lot of other people's stuff too. Uh, specifically, like the one you don't think of when you're listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, you hear that high vocal, you know it's Graham Nash. Right. The one that's the lead often is the Stephen Stills one, the sort of bluesy one, uh, or, you know, but the reason all those harmonies are so killer on all their stuff 
is the guy in the middle you singing the harmonies that nobody comes up with automatically. They're not the easy ones to sing, and they're always brilliant. And that's David Crosby, who is one of my favorite singers and the underrated guy in that band. And totally. he is. He and is, the Buffalo Springfield as well. He was, you know, when when we were doing the the bridge concert. We played two days at the Bridge concert, and the closing, the opening act was Neil Young. The closing act was the reformation of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And I think they were right after us. Before us was like, or maybe it was us and then Incubus and them. Earlier in the day, there was Wilco and Dashboard Confessional, all playing acoustic uh, to raise funds for the Bridge School. And at the end of the day, they were doing Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and they're standing up there, and they said, oh, everyone's going to come up and sing with us. And I had been hanging out talking to David Crosby all day. Um, he just kind of hit it off. He's the nicest guy. And uh, so when they started to play, he called me up to sing with them. And I, I walked with everybody else to one of the mics in the back. And he's like, no, 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 up here, up here. And I had to go up to the front with him. And, I, you know, he wanted me to sing on his mic with him. And wow. so I ended up on the front with the four of them singing. And uh, that's when I realized which vocal he was singing. And it wasn't the ones I was used to singing. I had to switch my harmony to sing his part. And it was hard to find it at first. And I realized how cool all his harmony parts are. Um, anyways, uh, the second Jackson Brown album is called For Every Man. And the title song, uh, and truthfully, we could have picked from 50 Jackson Brown songs because these guys all sing on different ones. Sure, sure. Um, and David Crosby also, I want to point out, as we talked about the last time we talked about Joni, he produced, he got Joni out of the underground and put her in the same pedestal as everybody else. And then, of course, they blew it. He, he produced her first record. Yeah. And uh, he was very, very famous for embracing new artists and getting, bringing them into the fold. So it doesn't surprise me he'd want you to come up there. And, you know, he, he was very generous with his expression yeah. and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just, well, he sings all the background vocals on. I mean, if we could have picked Lo- um, Doctor My Eyes, which is a very famous song, the single off his first record. And a wonderful harmony. Which is, which is David Crosby and Graham Nash. But I kind of wanted to play yeah. For Every Man because it's just a duet harmony. It's just him. David Crosby sings a lot of the song with with uh, Jackson Brown and it's really a beautiful just keening sad harmony along with Jackson Brown's yes. part yes um, so this is from Jackson Brown's second album his very second album which is like his very first album but it's the one after that <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the way the reason I ran in and out of the bathroom is because we're, we're going to go see uh, Martin Short and Steve Martin tonight Oh, wow. Up at the Beacon. And I'm flipped out about that because I don't know what they're going to be doing, but I know Steve Martin hasn't done stand-up in like 30 years. And I think they're taping that for a special. I don't know. But I, I, Martin Short is a genius and one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And, I mean, who knows what Steve Martin – I just I have to see this because I have to see this. Of course. But let's just start with uh, Jackson Brown and David Crosby from the album For Every Man. This is For Every Man. Ticket in his hand 
I'm so glad you played that and mentioned about how uh, Crosby is very rarely touted. If you if you watch, first of all, it's a beautiful harmony. It totally makes that song for me. I mean, he just matches the vocal. It sings. It's like a classically sung parallel harmony that's just utterly relaxed, matching the lead vocal, finding the ways to like pick the lead vocal up subtly, make it soar without without it getting huge. Because the song doesn't really build up musically into a chorus. The chorus is the two of them just yeah. hitting it. Um, do yourself a favor. We talked about this in our last podcast how Woodstock is not the greatest concert film. But one of my favorite points of, this sh- of the show, and, and this is specific to the film as opposed to the record, which I had first heard the record, strangely enough, before I saw the film. Because remember in, when I grew up, you know, there was no YouTube or DVDs or anything. You know, you, if you wanted to see Woodstock, you had to see it's a midnight showing, and it's like three hours long. But I had the record, and I love their sweet Judy Blue Eyes. But if you watch what's going on on the record, it's just the three of them, and they're stoned. And it was the first gig they ever had, you know, 500,000 people at Woodstock. You could, you could see, David when he opens his mouth, how much he affects the song. What he's doing in that song, because as you said, Stills is carrying the, the, the lead, and Nash is way up there, so he's really in the stratosphere. And Crosby's just keeping the whole thing together. So I'm glad you played that because it's just a duet with him and Jackson Brown, two pretty, pretty voices. But what, what Crosby's doing there is he's lifting that chorus into a, into a major piece of that song. He's yeah, great. It's what he does in all those things is he turns them into something. He's the one who really makes all those songs happen, and he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, singer in accompaniment. Uh, it's pretty amazing what he does. How about a little – what about a little squeeze? I'm so glad you mentioned that because we didn't get this in in the first one we did. And um, everybody – not maybe not everybody knows, but we all knew the music types that uh, – and, and fans of, of Elvis Costello that he produced. East Side Story. Yes. And so anyway, pick it up from here because it, Adam and I both put it on our list. So that's why we had to squeeze it in eventually um, because Elvis Costello, another distinct voice – a great songwriter, lead singer, leader of a band. And then he's, he's in with this iconic band, Squeeze, who gets Paul Carrick to sing the lead. So he's not even – well, you know, it's – Well, he joins the band here. Right. Paul he Carrick, is, right. But, he's been in a band called Ace before this, and he right. joins and plays keyboards. Because I think that this is when uh, Jules Holland leaves the band. Yes, Holland leaves. Correct. And so they have a number of lead singers now. Uh, he, because he plays keyboards, but he also sings lead. Until and a, a number is, of them sing on – on this, I think they all sing, including Elvis, on this song. Yeah, they each oh. take a line in one yeah. part. And that low, low, really cool thing, and I never knew that was Elvis Costello. So check this out. This is uh, from East Side Story by Squeeze, 1986. Tempted. Beautiful song. Oh 
So I need to qualify. That's not Elvis doing the low voice. He's doing the, there's no story I can tell. That's him yeah. doing that high, cool thing. That's fantastic. I, again, every time I hear this song, I hear different things. There's a million, woo-hoo-hoo, dip, 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 dip. There's like a million things going on in this song. It's such a great pop song. Carrick's kicking it. Of course, uh, what did Paul Carrick go? How long has yeah. this been going? Yeah, yeah. That was his song with Ace. Ace, right? yeah. W- wonderful um, voice. Well, it's wild in that song. Like they start off, it's the new lead singer Paul Carrick, and and by the way, his organ playing on that is out of this oh, world. Oh, really? So is. good, so true. And then, <laughs> and then everybody sings on it. Then it turns back into a regular squeeze song with the rest of them singing on it, trading vocals in the second verse, and then it comes back to Paul Carrick. Right. It's a uh, interesting, fantastic. Want to yeah. play this song? Uh, this band Aqualung, uh, British band. Uh, this is from about twelve, ten years ago. Because we talked about the Blue Nile in a previous podcast, and Paul Buchanan sings on this song, and it's so stunning. It's like, it's a beautiful song anyways by Aqualung, and it builds to kind of a climax, and then it breaks down, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, is Paul Buchanan. And suddenly he's taken over the lead, and he's just, it is riveting. For some, it's just out of nowhere. It's like, 
it, it just his appearance causes this hush, and it, it it's a beautiful song to begin with, and then it becomes him, and it's well, it's absolutely riveting. I don't it know. Takes it's over. just it's like it's like you're just you become so completely focused on on what he's doing all of a sudden. Yeah. Uh, but it's called Garden of Love by Aqualung. I, I actually really like this band. Anyways, I think they're really beautiful. But this band. is what you you know what he does here. What Buchanan does here is like when you ever see a play or a film where a lot of stuff's going on, then one actor comes in and then everything just focuses on them. It just he just takes over this song. It's a, it's kind of amazing. This is this is Garden of Love by uh, Aqualung from their album Memory Man. It's 
I don't know if that's really a background vocal or he just takes over the lead, really. Wow. But it's it's stunning, the gravity that he brings to the song all of a sudden. I mean, I, I love the other guy's voice. I can't remember his name right now, the singer for Aqualung, but uh, I think it's Matthew Matthew Hales, maybe. Um, but, God, when Paul Buchanan gets in there, uh, that's just incredible. Is he talking at the end? Is that him talking? He, he, he starts singing just... it. There's only so much that our heart can grow yes. and everything else starts to overflow. But you're young and in love. Back then, there was no way of knowing. Hmm. I mean, that 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 song really knocks me out. But it, it it and it's great from the beginning. But it takes on a whole other power when when Paul Buchanan comes in there and, and, and takes. I mean, what gave the guy the idea? Matthew Hale's the idea to like. I'll sing the first half. You sing the second half, and we'll just leave it at that. It's 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 incredibly powerful when he does that. Yeah, that's a guy who knows how to you know get the most out of his song. He, the, th- the the theme of it harkens to uh, rooftops, walk along the rooftops again. This idea of memory and looking back, and it's a very very touching song. It's beautiful. It kind of floats along like the Blue Nile stuff. He's perfect for it, and yeah. and he does change quite a bit the drama. He he adds a great depth to the drama of the song later on. Yeah, it's it's great. That was an excellent choice when we were. Right before we started to uh, to tape this one, and we had a bunch of songs we were trying to remember from the, that left over from the first time we did this. 
Adam played that for me, and, and both of us looked at each other and were like, you got to play this. I mean, it's the first time I heard it, so just a couple of hours ago, and now we're you know, playing it on the thing. It's a really beautiful song, great song. Yeah, we should probably wrap it up. Um, I, I just want to add one more thing because we forgot to talk about it. After we listened to Rider in the Rain, I was so uh, intrigued with how funny that song is in a right, way right. that I, I forgot what I was going to tell you, that like, Little Criminals was Randy Newman's first ever gold record. Uh, and the reason it's a gold record is because a very surprising song became a huge hit. You know, Randy Newman is a satirist. He'd always written these songs which are, like you said, un, un, uh, undependable narrators. You know, like the song about uh, the, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire with the very powerfully sung chorus, Burn On, Big River, Burn On. Mm-hmm. Or Sail Away, which is like about slavery. And it's they're, they're really mean-spirited amazing and satires. And he is the character. You have to remember, this is the songwriter period where people were writing in the first person expressing themselves. The James Taylors, the Jackson Browns, even in some cases the Warren Zevons, though he always had a tongue in his cheek. Randy Newman would in he would inhabit a slave trader and sing it from his standpoint, talking about how great this is. Yeah. Like, you know, and that, and when he did Short People, it was so shocking that people came out of the woodwork to, I mean, to he, protest He would write it. a singer-songwriter song like the ones that Jackson Brown and the Eagles would write, bearing their souls and opening their hearts, and he would write this horrific narrative from, like, someone he was really trying to skewer. And in Short People, he's writing what he thinks is a pretty intense... Uh, evisceration of racism. Correct. You know, he's talking about looking at people who are different than you and saying they're pieces of shit. Right. And so he writes this song. And how silly. Short people. He could have said anything. Short people have no reason to live. You know, and he thinks it's just this really (laughs) intense satire that he's been writing all along and people have been listening to. But because you can't get behind it, they haven't been getting behind. They haven't been getting swept up in his music unless you're a critic the way that they have been with Jackson Brown and the Eagles and Crosby, right. Stills, and Nash. They didn't know what to make of it. Or Neil Young. They've been – they don't – or James Taylor, really, not Neil Young. It's different. But they haven't been getting swept up in Randy Newman's satire because you can't really sing along. All of a sudden, Short People comes along and everyone does want to sing about how ridiculous short people are right. and – it becomes a massive hit, and there's a huge backlash by a lot of people who are saying, this is an abusive song you wrote about us. Fuck you, Randy Newman. And he's like, I, 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 I cannot believe this is the hit. Well, After all these years, right. this is the fucking hit. Well, you know what's funny about that? Uh, Wadi Wachtel, who produced and played lead on Werewolves of London, the biggest hit for Warren Zevon, again, an intellectual satirist yeah. who wrote more beautiful songs. And Randy Newman, he plays, on, he plays the lead on Short People. He said in both cases they could both artists could not believe it. And short people, even though the backlash was big, people didn't get it. Even though in the core in the bridge he sings, short people are just the same as you and I, and he sings a fool such as I. So he tells you in the song what he's doing, and that that song went to number two. The only thing that kept it out of number one was "Staying Alive" from the biggest hit album of the year. So the two biggest hits by two of the more intellectual, deep great songwriters was Werewolves of London and Short People. Uh, well, I mean, Werewolves of London, understandably to me, it's, it's such a brilliant song. It is, and but, so is Short People. It's a great, hummable song, but it's terrible. The sentiments yeah. are. Anyways, we got to call it for today. I, I got to go see Steve Martin. Go, um, go. And Martin Short. Steve Martin Short. <laughs> um, uh, but hey, thank you again for listening. This has been another episode of Underwater Sunshine. I am your host. Undependable or not, Adam Duritz, I'm here with my friend. <laughs> James Campion, go get Dwayne Tudal's Prince in the Purple Rain Era Studio Sessions, 1983-84. I wanted to give him a prop because we played Prince earlier. So, All right, y'all. Take care. 
See you later. Peace. Out.